Hey, hey, welcome in to another episode of Stub Me Down. My name is JW, and as usual, I'm here with my best friend and co-host, Skinny, who is drinking beers at 11, so you know what that must mean. Welcome to summer vacation, my friend. How are you today? I'm good, man. Same old story. I know it's been told, so, you know, I'm, I'm ready uh, for a big break here, although I'll be back and teach a summer program in about two weeks. <laughs> you know, short-lived, but it's going to be great. We're about to go on vacation tomorrow, so I'm excited. Well, I know that out of anybody, you will make the most out of those days off. Unfortunately for me, my summer vacation is still a few weeks away. We got the big shaft on the schedule this year, but what can you do, man? Just keep grinding and we'll get there eventually. And then I, like you, will make the most of the days that I have. The days between, I guess, as it were. You know, people are like, summer's off. I'm like, yeah, some people do. You know what I mean? Some people do. And some people do. I do not teach summer school. And it's not even really summer school proper. It's a it's a program for city kids so that come up to our school and spend the day. So it's amazing. But you still got to plan for all that. It's not like you just walk in and go, hey, let's get started. Right. <laughs> you can't you can't wing that. Well, we are here. This is episode seven, Skinny, of our third season of Stub Me Down. And this season has been killer, dude. We've had so much fun. On the last episode, we got to talk to Ed Lucas from Below Deck, who stubbed us down on a show that he went to, his very first fish show from December 30th, 1996. It was a lot of fun. Obviously, talking about the music was very cool, but hearing a little bit about Ed's experience on the Bravo TV show Below Deck was cool. I nerded out a little bit more on his current gig, which uh, he is a first officer on a Baltimore Harbor tug. So him telling us about that job and the things associated with being out on the water in Baltimore's Harbor, the history of Baltimore. That was just such a fun conversation, man. He was a really gracious guy taking the time out to be with us. And I just had so much fun hearing from him and again, making a new friend. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's really cool. And and I'm not a big sailor type. (laughs) Not yet. We'll get you skinny. We'll get you. I don't think so, man. Um, (laughs) Isn't it when you buy a boat, it just depreciates right away. Isn't that like, you know, your time depreciates and, like just like a car when you drive it off the lot. So yeah, dude, boats are literal holes in the water through which you throw money. I mean, that's really it. <laughs> yeah, no, no thanks. But it was cool to hear the stuff about being in Baltimore's Harbor and and the nuances of that. I have a good friend of mine from grade school and high school, um, my buddy Ross and his dad, who sadly passed several years ago, was a bay pilot and. He was just the greatest guy and told great stories and just what those guys know and and how they know it. It's just amazing. So, yeah, I definitely appreciated the conversation. And now that that what was it called? The ever the ever forward. Yeah. One of the things we had talked about with Eddie was that super max ship Panamax, I think is what they are called. A cargo ship that had gotten stuck in the Chesapeake Bay and it ended up being out there for two months or something like that i thought it was definitely over a month maybe two it was a while it was a while and ed's tugboat actually skinny was one of the ones that when they finally pulled it off and got it moving again 
Ed's tug was one of the key operators in that situation. So it was, it was cool. I texted him actually the day that it got off and I had seen a map of what tugs were involved in the operation. And I, I saw the name of his tug. So I screenshotted it and sent it to him. And I said, looks like you got it off. And uh, he was he was excited about it. So very uh, cool opportunity. And that show, I, I mean, he's an 11 year old kid. He goes to see a show at, in Boston on their 1996 New Year's run. I can't imagine what that was like. We took our 11-year-old, I guess I can't imagine, not as an 11-year-old, but we did take an 11-year-old to a fish show at the Gorge. We took Harper and Ashland to their first show in 2018, and Harper was, uh, I guess she was maybe 10. How old was she? Uh, she was nine. And so that experience of there's just so much to take in. And, you know, there's a lot of like looking around and what are those people doing over there? And I think Eddie did a good job of describing that from an 11 year old's perspective. It's always nice to get that kind of origin story of how people became a fan, right? And and I think Eddie did a good a good job talking about that. And as I said, super nice guy, very generous with his time. And it was just a, it was just a fun opportunity to talk to him, just like it was to talk to Peter and to talk to Jake and to talk to Brian Weinstein as usual. Fammer, yeah, yeah, and, and we had Fammer on. I mean, you know, we we really are everywhere, and this season has been super fun. But today, skinny, it's just you and me, man. It's back to the old days. <laughs> I know, which is cool, but I wanted to add one more thing to that, which is speaking of kids, is to say hi to our friend that actually lives in the Boston greater area in Massachusetts, Yardley. So that's uh, our friend Sarah's daughter. So Yardley, we heard you're a really big fan. So we wanted to just say hi to you. So hopefully you get all excited. <laughs> Yardley. Yes. Yardley, what's up? So it's always nice to have young fans too. You know, my two daughters, I guess, are kind of fans, but they only listen to it because I put it on in the car. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Same with my kids, my kids too. But yeah, we got to see Sarah when we were up at MSG. So that was awesome. And Yardley, the next time you're down in Maryland, gotta hit us up and we'll give you we'll give you some stummy down stickers. Skinny, we got tour right around the corner here, but Fish did just finish up a little kind of eight night. Some people are calling it a spring run. I'll just call it kind of a pre-summer tour run, but they played three nights in Alabama. They did a couple of nights in Charleston, and then they closed it with a three night run at Deer Creek. A lot of sci-fi soldier stuff making it into set lists, egg in a hole. The howling has, I think, really captivated the fan base as a tune, even though everybody hated it when it was played first last <laughs> October. Not me, man. I told you I had to wait until I heard it myself and I did it at MSG and I liked it. Egg in a hole was kind of it was just in the middle of that simple. So I didn't really think too much about it other than, oh, there it is. Egg in a hole. But, you know, if they keep playing those things, I, I'm definitely going to give it an ear. You know me. I, yeah, I might like yeah. it and I might cross my arms. Who knows? Right. Well, that's right on brand for you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like a song like Knuckle Bone Broth Avenue that they played, like really translated well, it has a nice groove. It's got quirky lyrics. It's it's just a lot of fun. And it's great to see how they're starting to fit these into set lists. And there's only two other things I want to note from this little mini run in Charleston. The second night there on May 31st, they played Stummy Down's theme song. 
Golgi Apparatus. Oh, yeah. And Trey changed the lyrics to reflect the modern times. And he said, I saw you with a barcode in your hand, Skinny. That kind of gave me a little bit of anxiety, knowing that the band is now very cognizant of the fact that we will not have ticket stubs physically in our hands anymore. So I got a good laugh at that. Megan had kind of teased around with a, I saw you with a phone code in your hand. A QR code. Uh, yeah, a QR code. Do you know my phone doesn't even work that way? Like, I don't know how to do the QR code. So Amy's got to do it for me all the time. Like, I, I don't even know <laughs> what to do with it. Like, you're supposed to take. You're just supposed to open your camera and, and it scans. And then, oh, right. It doesn't work. My camera, I don't know what it is. It's, it's probably me. Uh, you know, it's funny because we talked about that a couple episodes ago with Famer. Like he, he's standing outside, almost like stuck, you know, not able to get into a show. And I'm just like, dude, what? Like, I can't, I can't deal with that. You know, it's a different world, man. It's a different world. But the other thing I wanted to note, which was obviously the talk of Deer Creek Night 3 Sunday show, go figure. They opened the second set with a 34-minute sand. If you have not heard that version, it is bad ass. I haven't yet. I haven't listened to it. I've listened to some stuff. started at Orange Beach, but like I get held up and I just haven't listened to it. So I, it's on my radar. Yeah. Do yourself a favor. Get on it. And of course, the instant reaction, because everybody sees that it's 34 minutes, is, is this the best sand ever? Well... People can leave that to their own devices to determine. I'm a bit particular to the Big Cypress version. There was a great version on June 7th, 2009 at Camden. There, are, I mean, I could sit here and list a number of great versions. The debut of Sand on September 11th, 1999. Very good. My first Sand was December 18th, 1999 at Hampton. There are a ton of versions, but Sand has typically filled a... Eh, maybe an 8 to 12, 13-minute box in the last, yeah, let's call it 3-0. There are a few notable versions outside of that. But generally, when you hear a sand, you're not getting one of those extended versions. Certainly nothing like this monster. And just very cool to see them doing this with my favorite tune. Yeah, it's cool, man. I can't wait to listen to it. The one thing that I was intrigued by, were, well, two things, was the venue in Charleston that looked like a, a mini Arthur Ashe Stadium. I think it was a tennis court, right? Yeah, it's a, it's really cool. Grass or clay? <laughs> was everybody wearing white? Hard true or cement. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to wear it. That's only at Wimbledon, dude. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the second thing was this incident or whatever that occurred in Deer Creek, but I think has been happening like with this pit situation. And I know it's been happening in like MSG after they got rid of the East and West kind of you know, separation down on the floor. You know, people are going crazy. I, the one thing that you can do, I think, to solve that problem is just put seats down there. I've been in the pit at Meriwether. It's a terrible experience. I was there for a first set. I had to leave. I forget what year it was. It, it might have been 2015, 26. I can't remember what. It was a while ago. Hot, muggy, crowded. Nobody wants to give up any amount of space. There's nothing that people want to do other than, like, it seems like get really irritated about this, I belong here, I've waited, which I totally get. Like you waited all day, which I think is crazy. I would never wait all day in line to get anywhere. 
it's just getting a little out of hand. And I just don't know why that maybe they just take control of that and say there, you know, there's no more quote unquote pit. We're just going to put seats down there because whether what happened in Deer Creek is true or every story probably has a myriad of sides to it. I just thought it was interesting because it was the talk a couple of days ago. People were really, really upset about something that occurred with a, somebody being spit on. And then I guess my, if I'm going to say anything, my takeaway here is just remember we're all human beings and it's just a rock concert. Like there's nothing that's going to happen where you need to be mean or talk about somebody or something, or, or this is mine. And what are we two years old? I just found it interesting. Like now we're not adults anymore. <laughs> Have we ever really been? <laughs> no. And, 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 you know, take it from somebody that tries not to be an adult. I just think it's, it's beyond ridiculous that we're, we're going down this road. And if that started happening in other areas, like the back of the lawn, I, I would just, that would be it for me. I really have to say, I would have to take pause. There is a little bit of a territorial nature to it, I think. And I read the initial post from the person who said they were spit on or whatever, and it popped into the stummy down Twitter feed, the response from the dude that was kicked out of the show. And one of the things that that person mentioned was the initial couple that was very upset, were really drunk. And I think that obviously that's going to add an element to it where it won't be like, hey, you know, let's just have a quick conversation about this. It turns into, you know, more of a reactive situation and super aggressive. It just becomes very aggressive. It's right. Like, what are you holding it, on to? And there is, like I said, there's that territorialism nature. And I understand if you're talking about, the first couple of rows or whatever, there's plenty of room, man. There is, there's plenty of room for people. I look at it this way. We, we talked about it in one of the previous episodes. I said, I'm kind of a rail rider, but a rear rail rider, the back right. rail. And I like it back there because, you know, people can't really back up into you because there's no place to go, but even still people manage to do that. And when you, tree up a little bit, I guess, when somebody starts like banging into you from in front of you, right? Like my feet are set. I am not moving forward into your space. Like people just keep backing up into my space. You know, there's been some times where, you know, you put your hand up or the person is obviously oblivious or just doesn't give a shit that there's somebody that they keep encroaching on behind you. And there's, you know, I've had a couple of tense conversations at set break with people who, who have done that. Did you give him the old take it easy? Yeah, it's like, dude, <laughs> like I had a situation when we were at in Vegas and some dude was like on the railing in front of Meg, Megan and we were standing, you know, right by the soundboard. And this dude like kept bumping into her and like, like aggressively so. And so finally she like gave him a little bit of a nudge forward. Like, hey, man, I'm standing here like stop. And he was clearly just wasted. And then he like turned around and got in her face. So then I had to step in and then he was like ready to swing on me <laughs> until some security guy like literally was on the other side of the railing. And like as this dude was like coming at me, he reaches his arm over the railing and like wraps the dude up. Another guy that had been standing next to me steps in front of me 
and starts talking to this guy. And then like two minutes later, the dude like looks at me. He's like, hey, I'm really sorry. And he walks away. Could have been a lot worse. He got in my wife's face. Come on, bro. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? So I think that there is that 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 territorial nature that is fueled by, you know, various levels of intoxication. And, you know, I, I will say this, if somebody does come in 801 and tries to come in and like scam your spot and they're hammered and they're being belligerent about it, I, I think what's right is right. Sure. But we're all not social workers and I can't do that when I'm supposed to be going out to have a really right. good time and I got to be a social worker for the next 45 minutes to an right. hour because somebody else doesn't know how to act like a human being. You're 100% right. And I also feel that going along with that is we are all supposed to be coming into this with a shared sense of community and we're here to do something fun. We're here to rage out. We're here to listen to the music. And when people ramp it up like that, it's not just you know, the two sides, it's the people that are around that. And you start, you know, that negativity, that negative energy spreads like a wave. Yeah, it, does. Um, it has the ability to wrap up other people who are just trying to have a good time. And so look, everybody, chill the fuck out, man. Have a good time. <laughs> I'm sorry that you sometimes have to be an adult, even when you're out having fun. It's just yeah. the way it is. I just think, you know, especially the world we live in today, this is our escape from the fucking shit show that is around us 24-7. I think people need to check some of that stuff at the door and check their entitlement at the door. And let's try and be the community that we know we can be when we go to shows, man, because it is such a finite period of time. And do you really want to spend a half hour or 40 minutes of the three hour show beefing with the dude standing behind you? No, I don't. No. Anyway, skinny moving along. If you are not familiar with stummy down, welcome in. We are happy to have you. The premise of the show is that over the years, skinny and I have been friends. We have seen countless shows together sometimes separately. But what we do is we randomly pull a ticket stub from the shows that we have been to. And we use that ticket stub as a jumping off point to talk about the music, our friendship, the funny things that happen along the way, the scene. Lately, we've been bringing in a lot of other folks to tell their stories about shows that they have been to and they have stubbed us down. But today's just me and Skinny. So that is fun. Always cool to get back to that. And actually in the grand scheme of this season, this is only our second episode with just the two of us. So very cool that we get this opportunity, but it's also cool. We've expanded a little bit and had other people join us. So skinny, you got anything else before we uh, jump in today? I don't man. I am ready. So JW, are you ready to stub me down on today's show? Yeah, man, let's do it. All right, man, what do you got? Skinny, we're going back to the year 2002, my friend, to the land of chocolate, to see Phil and Friends at the Hershey Star Pavilion on July 19th, 
2002 when we were seeing a lot of Phil and Friends. There was no fish at the time, although we did see a Trey Band show, uh, no, I guess it was about a month before this show at Merriweather. So we were seeing Trey, but we were seeing a lot of Phil, and this was actually in the midst of a little bit of a run, or the first night of a three-night run that we did. So that's what we got, man, Phil. That's great. I'm excited about this show today, but starting where? What was the first show of this run that we saw? Do you remember? It was the week before they played at PNC in Homedale, New Jersey on July 12th. So we saw that show the week before. Then we caught this show on the 19th. And then the 20th, they played in Camden and the 21st was at Merriweather. So we had four shows in just over a week that we caught. You know, I hadn't really gone back and and listened to these shows. And today is a great example, I think, of what Stub Me Down's initial purpose was for us was to go back and and check out old shows that we had maybe not thought about or revisited for quite some time. And bro, this is not a show that I had gone back and listened to in, I couldn't even tell you yeah. how long. I mean, I do still have it on CD. Going back and listening to this, man, it was so much fun. Brought back a lot of memories and a very unique set list, even in the grand scheme of Phil Lesh and Friends, but in the, the bigger picture of the Grateful Dead and what they were playing. It's just a great example of kind of where we were and what we were doing in you know the early years of our friendship too. Yeah, and I would tell you that I'm intrigued by this show. Upon re-listen, there were a lot of things that I, I felt were going on here, and we'll get to those later, but I just always feel like the Grateful Dead in particular were pioneers, and that's one thing about Americans is like we we think we are or sometimes we are, but we're pioneers in the weirdest way, and the Grateful Dead is really a pioneer, I think, in musical storytelling. So, you know, people that are pioneers, they explore whatever, the, the country, music, their job, careers, looking for something, whether it's love, land, sex, vibes, money. So I think the Grateful Dead is the evolution of that. And now here we are 50 years later, um, and now we're talking about a show that was 20 years ago that I didn't listen to either. I mean, the last time I probably listened to it, J-Dub, was when you had the disc that you copied for me (laughs) when I was living with Cork and B. You know what I mean? So it's like, I thought it was really an interesting show from a storytelling perspective. Well, maybe I remember people not liking Warren. And this show makes me wonder why. I don't know what it is. It's certainly not his fucking guitar. So I have I have had a couple of conversations with some people about Warren Haynes, and there's this one dude I went to college with. He was a big deadhead, and he always complained about Warren. And I was like, "What? Like, why do you not like Warren?" And his response, and this was amazing. His response is that he's too big of a presence on stage, and he dominates everything that's happening from the vocals to guitar. And I just... Wait a minute. Did you ask him, like, so you didn't like fucking Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant? You don't like LeBron James? Like, I mean, I know, maybe you don't like basketball, so... I don't think LeBron James was a thing at the time. <laughs> well, I know, but I'm still, I mean, Michael Jordan, like, yeah. he's the greatest. I mean, you don't like Tom Brady? Maybe I don't, but I mean, I know that he's very good at what he does. Very good. He's excellent. So like, I, I, that's such a shit take. Well, I'm sorry. and you know what? Like, 
he was still going to the shows. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so he's like me. He's, he goes to fucking complain. Yeah, like I think he, he, you know, he goes to maybe catch a highlight, but then also, so he's got the, you know, the street cred complaining. You know, it's interesting too, Skinny. You're talking talking about pioneers and and stuff like that, and this show is in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I think. Hershey himself was a bit of a pioneer and certainly revolutionized chocolate making industry. <laughs> yeah, they came, well, I think the candy industry sure. and there's a lot of candy in the world, a lot of candy in America. But the one thing that I when I was thinking back to this show, you know, and a lot of people have seen concerts at Hershey, right? Hershey Stadium probably a lot of people have seen. We just saw a couple fish shows there last summer. And this was not at the stadium. This was at the Star Pavilion, which I guarantee you not many people have seen a show at the Star Pavilion because it's not really an official venue. It was like they built a stage behind the north end zone of the stadium on the outside of the stadium. They put up some bicycle fencing and they zip tied a bunch of those like Home Depot $3.99 plastic chairs, right? You know, that you can get in like the stack of four. I guarantee you, like every college house has had a set of those chairs that probably ended up broken or smashed by the end of the year, right? And that was what the venue was. It was, you know, 5,000 chairs zip tied together with like a space at the back. And it was raining that day. I remember the lot scene was not that much fun at the beginning. I mean, it was fun, but it was, you know, raining and people were kind of huddled and there was a police presence, undercovers and stuff like that. I do remember that. Fanaticism about police work over a concert. I'm just like. It's a little Gestapo-ish. Whatever. I guess it is a family venue, which I totally understand. So I think yeah. at some point, you know, yeah. that was probably their thinking there, you know, but I think also. The venue itself, meaning the stadium and the pavilion, are utilized for just like who can we find that's causing trouble. The outside of that venue, anybody that's listening has ever been, it's a tough venue. It can be for what you would call like a regular, hey, let's have a couple beers and a sandwich and then go into the show. It's not, it's not that great. Yeah. Yeah. And well, we'll get to a couple of the other the other funny parts about this. J.O. will love that we are talking about this show because his of his post-show scene he was he was also really upset that me and his brother drank the entire bottle of vodka before the show maybe the police were right <laughs> <laughs> for sure i think the other thing that's interesting here is where we were seeing phil right so fish wasn't playing we were seeing trey band when we could when he was around we were seeing the allman brothers anything in the genre government mule that we could catch our catch that was coming around you know new jersey maryland philly and so if you look at where phil really was in 2002 he played 51 shows from you know kind of like the whole year but really starting in march and running through into september in 2001, he had played 76 shows, you know, kind of a significant drop off. He was in his 60s. I mean, let's just be honest. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. But I mean, you know, they were also doing other things. He was, you know, at that point, he was playing some with the other Grateful Dead bandmates. They were the other ones. They were the dead, the dead. They, you know, they were they were a number of different things over that period of time. 
when I was doing some research for this, actually, Skinny, I I hit the mother load. I found a essentially a .NET version, a fish.net version for Phil and Friends. So I was able to really find some great Phil data. It goes back starting with one single show that he played in 1994. Then they really ramped up and 99 was really when things started. He started playing like 40 shows plus from there on. And then, you know, a couple of drop-offs here and there. It was just fun to to dig back into that stuff. And especially some of the songs that you and I saw a lot of, you know, like No More Do I or Unbroken Chain. So it was cool to, to finally get access to that. So that'll be helpful moving forward. I don't know why I didn't couldn't find this the other phil shows that we did but i mean everybody's busy brother i mean it's you're okay but i was i you know i had my dead base out and i'm like nerd not megan saw one of the pages and she's like what the fuck are you looking at and i was like oh this is dead base and she's like what does any of that mean and she's like you know what i don't want to know <laughs> maybe i don't either <laughs> when i found this website i was like holy shit this is the mother load Anyway, so I do have some great statistics from this show, but let's let's go ahead and get into the set. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm going to read off the set right now. I just want to let you guys know, like, Phil Lesh and friends, they knock the dust off a lot of tunes. So they start set one with Celebration, Dupree's Diamond Blues, Going Down the Road Feeling Bad, Ramble on Rose, Dear Mr. Fantasy into a Scarlet Rider Jam, into Slipknot, into China Cat Sunflower, into Franklin's Tower to end the set. So, again, when I say knock the dust off, there's a lot here. Not the celebration, you know, to begin. Although, that's a good tune from there and back again. I really like Rob Baracco's voice. I thought he did such an extremely good job at the keys, at the helm of the keys for several years. And I didn't think he got the respect that he wanted. He's such like a happy-go-lucky guy. And he's always willing to play. Reminds me a lot of Warren, but like at the keys, he has a great voice and he knows the whole catalog. And when I say knows the whole catalog, he knows the whole catalog and plays it extremely well so yeah uh, he's playing with dark star orchestra now so right I mean, no he's he is i think well rooted in grateful dead music and you're totally right his vocals on this anytime he sings i think he really has that range that can hit these tunes and he does you can kind of hear the joy in his playing there and back again which was the studio album that filled the quintet released in may of 2002 i mean this was one of the songs that i think really fit so well night of a thousand stars was another one no more do i i think those songs really fit nicely with what Phil was doing. The real thing. Yeah. And the fact that Phil created some original music to put into these Grateful Dead tunes and then the ones that he was bringing back to life. And we've talked about that in previous conversations about Phil and Friends is that he's breathing new life into songs that the Grateful Dead either didn't play, played sparingly, were played maybe early on in their career and then shelved for 25 years. The fact that he added that new music into the mix I thought was really fun. And you get into Dupree's Diamond Blues here. I mean, Phil and Friends played that 28 times. I mean, how many of those did you see with the Grateful Dead? 
Zero, probably. I, I I don't think so. I mean, just beyond beyond the newsletter. So like, and I knew the song because I think it's off the original Grateful Dead album. I'm pretty sure. I think people have a problem with the Grateful Dead and later bands just because they're so nuanced. They don't really understand what's going on. You know, this is a Hunter Garcia tune, which interestingly enough, Yorma Kokanen came out and played this with them. He was in Jefferson Airplane too. You know, talk about a guy that's been around forever. Came out and played that with them. And it's just a, it's a nuanced tune, I think, because of the storytelling in it. And I'll get to like what I think thematically is happening in both of these sets. But the song really is, many a man's done a terrible thing. And it's all about this terrible thing that Frank Dupree did and wound up being executed for it in 1922. He killed a couple cops, basically robbing a jewelry store for his girlfriend. The things we do for the women. <laughs> I ain't doing that. But, you know what I mean? And went to Chicago, I think, is where he killed another officer, unfortunately. And then it talks about, like, this infatuation and this obsession over uh, a relationship because it has all these sexual connotations. Like, I did not know that jelly roll was a common slang for female genitalia at the turn of last century. And I didn't know that until about 36 minutes ago. <laughs> I know, because I told you. That's great. I love the etymology of that, though. That's. But, you know, it's a slang, and obviously it's not a very proper thing to say. It's, it's a story that's unfolding here that begins with, I think, this Dupree's Diamond Blues. I don't know, Dupree's brings back a lot of memories of being on the lot with that blue-colored, like, cardstock paper with, you know, set lists from the previous tour and information about not bringing your dog on tour and, like, <laughs> where the next tour may be or, like, fan interviews. I think that's kind of really like the precursor to what we're doing right. it's definitely what i remember you know i think this is an amazing placement by the way we, we've talked about this all season long this is the second song played if you're a grateful dead fan if you saw this live i, I mean good for you but i didn't see it until 87 so this is way off my radar i just knew the song because of the original album right well you would have to be very lucky to have seen it live because the last time the dead played it was in 94 it had a four-year gap prior to that 94 appearance so the last time that they had played it prior to that was in march of 1990 where was that i don't know i didn't write that down i just got the date because oh, <laughs> i was on that tour march 26 1990 i don't know i can look up i can look up the venue they only played it once in 89 out of 73 shows they played it three times in 88 and 87 four in 86 and then 16 and 85 so it really stopped being something regular you know call it 1985 and then was shelved for four years so you only had the opportunity to even see it three six i mean seven eight times from 87 to 95 so you would not hit that pocket yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so here's the thing for me about this one is we're at the show and I had to bust out my set book from 2001, 2002 because I was just so curious, especially if if you go to listen to this show on Relisten, the track listing for the first set is wrong. Right. And I was listening to it and I was like, this shit is wrong. It's out of place. It's out of order. It's also wrong on philzone.com. I remember that. Yeah. 
It used to be a message board, but it was like, you know, when Phil was was actively touring and playing, you know, 40 to 70 shows a year, philzone.com was the place to be. Remember that dude, Keyshawn or whatever? I actually sold him a ticket for the Beacon, but like... Yeah, yeah. Well, we used to get tickets. I used to get copies of shows yeah, yeah, from yeah. there. That I guy mean, was causing a lot of trouble, you know, by the he, way, Twitter people. Before you <laughs> had Twitter, that guy was called. Yeah, before yeah. there was Twitter. Yeah, that's right. But here's how, for me, I, I looked at this show. Celebration I knew, but I wrote down Jelly Roll in the ah. notebook for Dupree's because I did not know this song. And for those of you that don't know, I never saw... The Grateful Dead with Jerry Garcia. I started listening to The Grateful Dead in 1995. Jerry died in 95, obviously. But I was really still learning a lot of the music. And because it hadn't been such a frequent visitor in Setlist, it was just something I wasn't familiar with. So for me, I looking back at that, and I was like, oh, shit, you know, I didn't even know this tune in, in 2002. That's pretty cool, though. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that to me was, um, it was an impactful memory here. Fucking noob. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, everybody's a noob at some point. Right. But your mistake on for the going down the road, feeling bad, which clocked in at 12, 13 minutes there. And that is a fun version. Warren changes the words. Uh, it was raining in, in Hershey that day, so he changed the, the words to standing in Hershey in the rain, and he kind of repeated that a couple of times, and they played a, a, a really sick version of this. And again, you're only talking about the third song of the show, and so the set construction here, they know it's raining, they've thrown out a rarity, they have a guest on there, they're having fun with the fact that it is raining. I remember just, it was kind of like it was kind of heavy. And then when the show started, it was kind of like that misty spitting rain. Yeah, just like overhanging the whole time, you know. Yeah, and and I think it was probably around the going down the road where people started cutting the zip ties that were holding the plastic chairs together and stacking them up. So you'd have like a crew of people and then you'd have like 15 chairs stacked up like to like six feet. (laughs) I think they took them away in the second set, like right break. They're like, okay, we're just going to take these things out here. Yeah, they did. They, they started pulling the chairs out, but there was just, I just remember, you know, seeing these stacks of chairs because we were kind of up close. We were in, you know, the first maybe four or five rows, I think. And then when the chairs were gone, it was like, you know, we were basically on the rail. But the going down the road, I think, you know, it also kind of builds upon that theme that you're talking about. You've got Dupree getting in trouble for robbing a jewelry store, killing a few cops. Well, he's going to be going down the road feeling bad after that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and he did get on the road. Like, he went to Chicago. It was, I think, where he injured one and killed another officer. And then, you Got know, to get back to Chicago. Right. But he wound up being, you know, executed in Atlanta. They brought him back. But, you know, I think, too, there's a theme that's starting and i think it's a lot of it is time women and freedom and sometimes that time is you're great which ramble on rose and dear mr fantasy kind of have that thematic viewpoint of how life is grand but then it also talks about prison time which we'll get to later i'm only skipping over the ramble on rose because it should be called prattle on rose you know there's no way to play that song <laughs> Other than that and Tennessee Jed, I, I got to tell you, are my probably 
on my top 10 most hated. Really? Tennessee Jed too? You know, just like Jack and Jill, it takes so long. It's just like, I'm glad that that ramble on is only eight minutes. The idea of roses being signifies love. So you're still on that same theme, but I just don't like the song. So, I mean, you know, I'll go with it. It's not like I'm walking out. At that point, we were, that's what, the fourth song in. So it's probably about time to refill a beer and take a leak. And I doubt that I did that there because we were probably so close, I waited. But you know what I mean? Like, that's the only song I'm like, eh. Well, the Dear Mr. Fantasy was a really nice version. That hit almost 16 minutes. Great traffic cover here. One of my favorites. Phil played this 49 times total. This was the 14th version that Phil and Friends played. Again, remember these statistics are going back to roughly about 1994, although from 94 to 99, there was only like one show, four shows. Like, not We're not talking about a, a large number of shows, but... You want to talk about Warren. Warren torches this song, dude. The vocals, he's, I mean, he just hits every note. It's so clean and crisp. The interplay between him and Jimmy is just some of the most fun dueling guitar work that was available to us at that time. And really, I think, stands up quite nicely today. And then I didn't recall this at the time, and I didn't even make a note of it, but there's a get-up, stand-up tease that Warren plays huh. kind of towards the end of this. I don't know if you caught that. I did not. I'm going to go back and listen to it. It's just a wanna, 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 and, you know, he kind of repeats that phrase a couple of times, and I was listening to it. I was like, oh, shit, that's really cool. And that's something that we've talked about. You know, Fish obviously does that all the time and drops in, you know, little carrots here and there. I think Phil did that as well a little bit less frequently than fish does and then you know that wasn't really something that was a regular feature i mean the grateful dead would tease themselves but not necessarily throw in a lot of additional other musicians i mean they did but it was not it's not something that they were known for you know what i mean yeah what's interesting is they also used to tease tears of a clown which i know that fish is teased a lot and they would tease that and that's interesting that you said get up stand up stand up for your right because again, that fits in with the entire theme of the entire show, which I did not hear, and I wish I did now. I feel hopelessly unprepared. <laughs> <laughs> well, because of the whole fucked up track listing, I had that as part of the China Cat Rider, which they have listed as next, but it was really this kind of weird scarlet begonias i know you rider mashup jam which i had to listen to a couple times to pick out the scarlet because it still sounded kind of like the china cat and and a little bit rider-ish more so than scarlet so i didn't necessarily identify the scarlet part of it so it's interesting to see that listed in that way and at the time i thought it was just the end of the dear mr fantasy jam into Slipknot and then they play the Slipknot and then they play the China Cat Rider which is a really weird transition into how they designed that the whole thing is weird and I even wrote in my notes like this is a strangely awesome set like it's put together very weirdly especially you know the beginning of it is largely normal but when after the Dear Mr. Fantasy through the flat the Franklins it's Really weird, like they have that random Slipknot. Slipknot. It's only like a minute long. 
And it's never played without help on the way. Yeah. Never. And so here's an interesting statistic. The Grateful Dead played Slipknot 112 times, and only four of those were without a help on the way. Huh. Phil played... <laughs> I don't even know if I wrote down the Phil. I didn't write down the Phil on this one. Or maybe I did. No, I didn't write down the Phil one on here. But Slipknot never shows up without help. And there's a Franklin's in this show. So you have a Slipknot, Franklin's, and no help. So then I was like, wait, did they play a help earlier in this tour? And then they were completing it? No, they didn't. So it was just crazy to see, you know, once again, Phil is doing some completely different things here than what you might traditionally expect, number one. And number two, the way that this all flowed together from the Dear Mr. Fantasy through that jam, whatever you want to call it, into the Slipknot, into the China Cat. I mean, it was, it, there was just so much music that was filling the air leading into the Franklins to close that set and just unique music. And that was really, I think, kind of what shocked me about going back and listening to this because I was like, this is really weird and unique from a statistical perspective, but the music is also very, very strong for, again, a show that Hershey and O2, people are not like going back and pulling that one out, you know, uh, when they're like driving to work. What should I listen to today? But it's funny because they should, because Phil was a mastermind as far as composing these parts. And I always wondered what the conversation was a lot of times because he did do things like this, which is not only knocking the dust off old tunes that were never played or that were rarely played in the Grateful Dead catalog, but he also had this insistence upon making it almost symphonic. So I, I have really great respect for a lot of these shows and maybe I should just start pulling these out a lot more than I do because this one is really, really good. You know, to end with the Franklins, which is definitely going to get everybody in the crowd up, especially after a shit weather day. And the jams from that Scarlet Rider jam all the way through, even that short little Slipknot and the China Cat, which is short. But then they jam back into that Franklins. Like, that's really great. You know what I mean? I just, I, I can't find, I'll say superb. I'm tired of saying great. Great's just like, what a fucking <laughs> below average adjective to describe what is a really insane first set you know outside of that celebration if you're a grateful deadhead you're like ah, it's like new there and back again whatever it's their album that they made but the rest of it you couldn't really argue with i'd have a hard time arguing with it yeah i really like that china cat too because there was almost like this blissful dialed back jam and then the band, just the way they work it from one end to the other as far as that blissful, melodic feel into this raging, cranked up jam. It's just so much fun. And Molo is just beating the shit out of his crash cymbal and an underrated drummer, I think. Yeah, Molo's great. I think we maybe talked about this when we talked about the Bethlehem shows, being close and watching Phil communicate with the other guys on stage. And you can see him calling changes and signaling. And he really is 
in it as far as his playing, but he's also in it as far as directing the band. And then there's just that natural intuition, I think, that the players have with each other. And you've got Baracko complimenting the guitarists, fills the backbone. Molo keeps the train rolling with rhythm. It just makes for, it's raining in Hershey, but the music, you really didn't give a shit about the conditions because the, the first set was so good. Yeah, well, the first set was bringing sunshine, I guess, for you, huh? So let's run <laughs> through that first set again. Start off with Celebration into Dupree's Diamond Blues, Going Down the Road Feeling Bad, Ramble on Rose, Dear Mr. Fantasy, A Scarlet Rider Jam, Slipknot, China Cat, Sunflower, into Franklin Tower. And that ends the set. So... Pretty good, man. I love it. I bet you at the time I was a little bit disappointed that there was no help in there because I really love Help Slip Frank is like one of my favorite suites of music in the Grateful Dead catalog. And I always loved Phil's interpretation of that with, with this band. So I, I'm, I'm trying to remember if I was like, why didn't they play Help? That sucks. I know. Uh, I mean, who knows what they're no. doing? You know, a lot of times when you try to figure it out, it's heartbreakingly stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me read over the second set. The second set starts with a Violi Blues into Pride of Cucamonga, into Hard to Handle, which is only the first verse, into a really smoking jam that goes into a Bertha. The real thing into the wheel, into another jam, which apparently Phil and Friends is known for, into <laughs> I Know You Rider, into Sugary, which ends the set. And then, of course, Phil does his intros and his donor rap, and then the encore is a liberty. I'm just gonna start with the Viola Blues. Prison time, imprisonment, the judge decreed it. It's really hitting on this theme, and I keep saying that for if you're already tired of me saying it, is because Phil was interviewed several times, even when we were seeing him a lot, and said that he really attempts to tell a story. Now, it might be cosmic, and something that you really can't put your finger on, but I really think that this entire show is a convergence of stories, the first and second set. And it really has to do with freedom, imprisonment, and relationships with women that either go bad. Uh, I mean, I think they just all go bad. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, especially the Dupree's, I mean, hard to handle. I mean, that's definitely a nod to how relationships can be difficult. Sorry, ladies, I'm not saying that you're difficult to handle. I'm just saying this is what I think the story is. But I always found it interesting with Phil. I don't know how often I did it when we were seeing them, but we did talk about it, I'm sure. You know, nobody wrote anything down or whatever. It's just all conversations in the air, probably on the way back from the show or to another one or whatever. I, I really believe that they create one here that you can put your finger on. Yeah, well, Viola Lee Blues, again, we want to get back into some statistics here. The Grateful Dead played Viola Lee 33 times in their history, but it was shelved in 1970. So Phil is bringing this back, playing it with a vengeance. And one of the great versions of this was from the Warfield in 1999 when Trey and Paige joined Phil for those shows. And they had a 30 minute plus version of Viola that opened the whole run on April 15th. It's just such a great piece of music. I don't know why the Grateful Dead 
shelved it. And it's funny too, I looked, going back to the set that I wrote, Viola Lee into Chocolate Jam, back into Viola Lee. Why did you write Chocolate Jam? Like, what, what, just because you're in Hershey Park? I guess, I was feeling, it was, it, it was feeling sweet, you know? It just seemed, it seemed right. Why didn't you write Roller Coaster Jam? I don't know. I had a lot to drink that night. <laughs> The version here that they play, it starts the set, it's almost 20 minutes, and it has all of those elements, including dueling guitars, a little bit of ambience, a, a little bit of rage, but then it continues on with this, you know, this theme that you're talking about. I always remember Joe being super excited about Viola Lee Blues coming into sets because he never saw it with the Grateful Dead, and it was just, you know, a tune that he loved, and. He spent a, you know, maybe a weekend or two in jail and I think maybe identified a little bit with some of the themes there. The judge decreed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And I think that from that perspective, having this come into set lists for us was always, it was always fun because it was such a rarity. It follows that line of Phil identifying some of these old tunes that had not been played and really giving them a space the attention that they they rightly deserve and i think that that was really one of the things that made going to see phil and friends especially during this time period so special for me because i was learning so much about the grateful dead catalog through phil's set lists I mean, you know, we already talked about that with the Duprees, and I knew Viola Lee because there's some, you know, it's on a bunch of shows, obviously, from the 60s in the, the Grateful Dead's first five years. So I, I definitely knew it, but I mean, I could never imagine seeing it like this. That's Pigpen, you know? I mean, that's kind of, again, the, one of the pioneers of the Grateful Dead. And so talk, go back to what we were saying about pioneers, you know, somebody that a lot of people respect even to this day as you know the forefront of the Grateful Dead I think really Pigpen was probably the number one guy sure. yeah. um, until 72 I think Jerry was probably pretty comfortable with that you know how much they loved him uh, because he was so talented and then it drops into a song which Viola Lee Blues usually has this cacophony of other songs that go with it like yeah. Hard to Handle which they play right after this but to drop a pride of cucamonga in here which again you know had me some loving but done me some time goes back to what we're already hitting on this story you know written about neil cassidy you know one of the original beatniks and his friend robert peterson who was a poet died in 1987 you know just about kind of his life jumping around you know i was telling you before i think I'd love to just jump around and, and not have to worry about it. Beatniks, I think, were known for that carefree attitude. And if any young listeners out there have not read On the Road by Jack Kerouac, I think you should. It's an era that doesn't get talked about enough that was prior to the free experience of the hippies, per se, you know, in the San Francisco. It's Bay. a precursor, yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, my mom who turns 80 this year. I mean, she was kind of into that scene. She liked beatniks. She was not, she was pre, I guess, like hippie. Pre-hippie. Yeah. I mean, by 66, she had had my brother. So, you know, what she was doing was going to clubs and 
you know, smoking cigarettes and listening to, you know, guys play bongos, you know what I mean? So it was just a little bit of a different scene. I identify with that free spirit. I think I, I like that better because it seems to be more intelligent, I think, than just drop in, drop out, tune in, tune out, that type of philosophy. I think the beatniks were kind of on to maybe the literature, the poetry, side which i identify more with than kind of like drop out of everything and just live your life it's it's a difficult um situation right. to i put yourself involved in i mean you're going to be broken hungry right <laughs> it's, like, it's awesome <laughs> sounds terrible but yeah I, I thought that was great you know because it was the first time i think you have some stats on this i i knew that the dead and any other existing members had they had never played it but they did play it together without Jerry, obviously, in 2004 at Red Rocks on June 15th. Yeah, I mean, the Grateful Dead never played Pride of Cucamonga. This was on Mars Hotel, which came out in 74. You think about that, like, that's crazy. The Grateful Dead never played this tune. It's a great tune. Phil played it 69 times total. Again, we're, we're starting in 94 and going through present day. Um, and this was the 13th version of Phil. So by this time, you know, he had kind of put it out there and put it to a particular style with Warren and Jimmy and, and Rob and John Molo on drums. So I really thought that seeing this, again, with links with the Duprees, this is a song that I obviously had never heard before. I mean, I probably had heard it because I'd heard Mars Hotel, right? But there were no recordings of it. Sure. So it just got me so excited to be in the scene. And I honestly felt like, you know what? Hey, yes, I missed The Grateful Dead, but here's all of this new stuff that I'm not missing and that I'm kind of along for the ride as it develops. And so I really kind of looking back on this from a statistical point, I'm like, man, holy shit. Like I did see some shit. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. I mean, I did talk about like an old standard. They jump into hard to handle, although they only play the first verse. I mean, that's still like another over 10 minutes. I mean, these are really extended jams. It's very, very good. It takes like three minutes for them to get even to the hard to handle part. It's a song that's appeared on so many Grateful Dead live versions, including one, which I used to like, and live from the fill zone. I really love the fact that the Grateful Dead covered this, an old Otis Redding tune, which I did not know this. Here's some research for you. I did not know that Otis Redding had already died by the time they released this on an A-side with another B-side 45. He had already passed away, tragically. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was recorded, I think, in 67. And then he died. And then the next year it was released, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and, and a lot of people would probably, if, especially if they weren't in the know, they might think that this was black crows tune because <laughs> they hear it on the radio they hear it on the radio and i think it's interesting that chris robinson joined phil and friends a couple of years later right in 2005 i never saw that compilation of them we did jo and i saw uh, a few of shows we went up to new york a couple times at like hammerstein or something like that yeah i saw the other kid that he had jackie green i think yeah yeah i mean you know joan osborne was was a part of the band for a while and larry campbell and well that was with the dead right no i think she was with i think she was with phil and friends for 
for a little bit. Yeah, okay. We'll have to double check that. I don't remember. I don't know. We don't care when we make mistakes, by the way. So fuck you guys. Yeah, if you want to fact check, head over to Attendance Bias. <laughs> We've also talked about this before, about Phil and Friends in this particular lineup. But their transitions from one tune to the next is really unlike any other band. Fish does it very well, but sometimes Fish gets a little bit clunky as they change from one tune to the next, right? Yeah. The transition here from the hard to handle into Bertha, I mean, that Bertha comes out of nowhere and it just is so smooth and you're walking along and all of a sudden it just slips so naturally right into the Bertha. You're just like, holy shit, did that, how did that materialize? Yeah, it's like a surprise gift. You know, you open a surprise gift. Those alligator mouths must be terrible for you guys doing your set books. I don't know how you even keep track of it. So here's an interesting thing, Skinny. Actually, I'm just referring back to this. So after Pride of Cucamonga in the notebook, I wrote down Green Light Jam. Okay. <laughs> Before the hard to handle. So I wonder if the, the lights had some sort of, obviously some sort of like green theme to them. During... You sure it wasn't like on one of the roller coasters like the super duper looper or whatever is back there i don't know i wish i had been a little bit more descriptive in my note there but this is one of those little green light jam. green light jam into hard to handle into bertha okay into the real thing i have heard that this song is about jerry but we just had a discussion jw i mean that it could be about alan woody but i mean we don't know i think that the lyrics are interesting. Yeah, I, I looked this one up. This is on There and Back Again. It's a war in tune. And we know that on There and Back Again, Patchwork Quilt, I think it's like officially stated that it was about Jerry Garcia. This is left up to interpretation. I couldn't find anything specific that this was about Jerry or Alan Woody, who was the bassist in Government Mule, who passed away in, what, 99? Something like that. But the lyrics here, he wore a song around his neck like some medal of honor. He carried his wisdom like a knife. There, I'm like, did Jerry Garcia really carry his wisdom like a knife? Uh, that I don't know. Kind of witty. Yeah, but then, so then every blue note that rolled off his tongue, you could feel his soul twisting right in two. So really there it feels like, you know, everything that he's doing is kind of an internal battle, you know? So, I mean, I you could say that about Jerry. Jerry had a lot of internal battles, I think. Yeah, a lot of demons, you know, but then you look at the chorus he was the real thing no doubt about it the kind that you remember when they're gone the real thing put here for a reason we knew someday the whole world was gonna know his name he was the real thing so i mean you can go you know but all he found was a troubled mind go through and and find some things that you could probably align with jerry you could probably find them with alan woody you could probably find them with anybody who has had an internal battle. One of the choruses, finger on the trigger, needle in the vein, one more bullet, it might be your last ride. I mean, that's pretty fucking heavy shit. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I know that they, they both struggled. Right, they both had, you know, addiction and probably, you know, played roulette on more than one occasion, Russian roulette on more than one occasion with the choices that they made and, and stuff like that. It's a great tune. It's very soulful. It's very 
plays it excellently. I mean, it's very excellently played. I, yeah, I mean, and, I mean, it's a Warren song through and through. You know, it's got that you know kind of heavy southern rock, real bluesy, heavy guitar solo, uh, and then Warren's vocals I think are kind of like um, unlike any other in in rock and roll. We actually saw and we actually saw the third version of this in New Orleans when we were down there for Jazz Fest. Ah, that's interesting. It jumps into the wheel. The wheel's turning and you can't slow down. I mean, I think that's kind of maybe talking about storytelling is that everything goes back to where it was. So, you know, who knows? I love the the fact that the wheel starts right away after that real thing and then there's a jam after it. Typically, uh, they would have a jam prior to the wheel and then it would kind of go into it and slowly kind of creep out of that and explode, which I, it doesn't matter how it works, jam before or after their tunes, it always seems like they know where they're going, which then they just explode into a, I know your rider. The wheel fits into their really well too. The wheel is turning and you can't slow down. You can't let go and you can't hold on. I mean, that for me has always been, those lyrics have always hit me as one of like the perfect metaphors for life, you know? And sure, that fits right into this story of love and time and doing time. And I think that it really is a perfectly placed component of the story to this set and at the end of this it almost feels what a beautiful jam but it feels like jimmy and warren are kind of like racing each other a little bit in their guitar licks yeah. as this approaches the rider and that was a lot i went back and listened to that part just like that last two three minutes of this a couple of times just because those dueling guitars they like spiral with each other and interlock and climb and get faster and more intricate and man it's rock and roll to the core yeah it's crazy how they could play off of one another you would think two lead guitarists would have this inability to kind of feel each other out but again we go back to what phil is capable of doing and that's when he has several musicians on a stage he just takes over and like this is where it's gonna be and it does seem like that it's this ability to just intertwine like you said they don't you don't miss anything and if anything you're like oh there's jimmy oh there's warren like i remember listening to him all the time like oh, i love when warren does this or i love when jimmy comes in here you hear that it was a lot of that plus molo being the backbeat Morocco just knowing the catalog so well phil being phil yeah. which means so many things i think to fans you know of this type of music specifically the grateful dead i noted a couple of teases too during the wheel they had a cumberland tease although i think that that was one that you know i kind of heard cumberland and everything <laughs> back in the day and then there was a little bit of a going down the road tease in there some some interesting statistics on the i know you rider First of all, another amazing transition from the wheel into this rider. Yeah, that whole second set, I think, is, is transitions. Yeah. yeah, and it connects back to the first set, China Cat. So you get the China Cat with a bunch of shit, and then you get the rider. Interestingly enough, you know, you think China Cat rider. They, they go hand in hand pretty much every time. If you look at the statistics here, 209 times played for the rider, but only 147 times played on the China Cat. This is uh, Phil's statistics, by the way. So. Huh. There were more riders than China cats, so they were not always paired 
together, which I thought was an interesting thing. Now, the one thing I did not look at to see if all 147 of those China cats did have a rider. But I mean, they're breaking up sweets. Right, right, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, they're not doing what you would normally expect in a traditional Grateful Dead set list, probably from like the late 70s until they stopped. You know what I mean? I think that was very intentional is that Phil was deciding to play these songs a little bit differently. I mean, the China Cats in the first, the Riders at the bottom of the second. You know what I mean? There's right. no Scarlet Begonias, there's no fire, fire on the Mountain, but it's a Scarlet Rider jam. But then they play like the I Know You Rider later. So it's just some weird... Right. There's a slip in a Franklin's, but there's no help on the way. Right, exactly. And then, you know, in a Viola Lee Blues, usually you drop a hard to handle or something else there and they have a Prada Cucamonga. Like, I think that is super intentional of Phil there. Not only to tell the story, but also to say, we're going to play it like we want to play it, but it's going to be very, very familiar to you in how we play it. It's just going to be stylistically, you know, we're going to kind of tear that up a little bit. We're going to start fresh and we're going to tear up the old, what do they say? Like tear up the old playbook and, and start with some other things so that we can kind of be a little bit more nuanced and, and get people talking, which they did because we saw, them, you know, I mean, so many times. I, I wish I could go back and see how many times. We, I mean, we could. I don't have the time for that. <laughs> I'm not doing that. I, now that I have this resource that I recently discovered, I am going to, I'm bound and determined to figure out, because I know I don't have all those ticket stubs, so I'm bound and determined to figure out exactly how many Phil and Friends shows we've seen, because for a while there, when there was no fish, I mean, we were seeing you know, four, five, six Phil, Phil shows on the tour, so, you know, summer tour, fall tour, we did a bunch in, in 2001, we've talked about that previously. You know, they closed this set, too, with a 15-minute sugary and it's a great sugary. It's a very nice way to close the show. The positioning, and we've talked about some really nice sugaries with the Grateful Dead. Usually a first set tune. Yeah. Would, would, would a sugary be placed probably in a first set? Look at it here. It ends. By the way, tell your friend that says he doesn't like Warren to listen to the sugary. And maybe he should adjust his thinking because I just don't understand after listening to this. It's a very, very good version. Uh, of sugary there's nothing wrong with it at all and, and warren just crushes it so whoever you are check your facts fucking what are you doing i'll uh <laughs> i'll tell you a funny story i'll tell you a funny story about that guy offline <laughs> okay great <laughs> it's probably not that funny but you know no, whatever no, listen it, to it, it's funny this is really it's good funny. okay all right <laughs> all right anyway so then after that really sweet sugary they encore with Liberty, which we've talked about actually this season because we did a Grateful Dead show from 1993 at the Cap Center and they also had a Liberty encore. Any stats on Phil doing this or you kind of all out of stats? You run out of gas? I did not have any positioning stats for Phil on Liberty, but Phil played it 32 times. Um, compared to 56 by the Grateful Dead. And as we talked about when we talked about that Grateful Dead show in episode two, 47 of those 56 Grateful Dead versions were in the encore spot. So I, I do, I would need to dig a little bit more specifically into those 32 versions by Phil to see where the placement was. But I, I would have a 
of feeling that a, a good number of them were probably in the encore spot. Liberty's a great encore tune, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, again, goes back to the theme. It is, that's about freedom right there. I mean. Yeah. I mean, that, and what, I mean, at the end of the show, you, you know, you've got these trials and tribulations and jail and feeling bad going down the road but the, the road doesn't stop and all of these things i know you rider and then at the end of it all ooh freedom ooh liberty yeah well which you know i'm not gonna get too political but apparently some people in this country don't know what that is anyway anyway <laughs> let me read through the second set from 719 2002 at the hershey star Pavilion in Hershey, Pennsylvania. It was really just a parking lot, bro. <laughs> yeah. The parking lot, the back parking lot from Hershey. <laughs> it's where you catch the tram, the chocolate world. <laughs> Violently blues into Pride of Cucamonga into Hard to Handle, only the first verse. A huge jam that surprises all of us with Into Bertha. Then the real thing into the wheel, another very good jam into I Know You Rider and ending the set with Sugary. Phil obviously always talks about being a donor and introduces the band and then they encore with Liberty. Anything else on this show today, buddy, that you got for me? Nah, man, that was just a fun one to revisit. And I flipped through the set lists from the other shows that we saw, the one at Homedale on July 12th, and then the next two nights, which were Camden and Merriweather. Super good set lists. Definitely shows I want to go back and listen to. I know we've already done a, a 2002 Phil show on a previous episode when we talked about... I think that was uh, 2001. Was that oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Oh, no, that t- other 2002 show that we did was uh, Government Mule. Right. Which not a lot of people listen to that episode. I guess there's not a lot of Government Mule fans out there. Probably your friends spending bad rumors about Warren. Probably, right, because of Warren. But, no, this was a fun run, and Hershey really kind of keyed those other two nights being on tour with Phil. We had so much fun back in the day. We traveled... A lot of miles, you, me, and and J.O., and, and Joe went to a bunch of these shows with us as well, and a great time. I was still learning a lot, as I mentioned earlier. I was still learning a lot about The Grateful Dead, and Phil really helped to develop my knowledge base at that time, and really, I think that that's, that's how you develop. You can listen to shows and stuff like that, and but going and seeing this stuff and watching how it unfolds I think there's, you know, there's no substitute for that. And so I got a lot of great education and not only just from seeing the music, but from doing it with you, doing it with J.O. and and Joe. And you guys were a wealth of knowledge. Obviously, Joe knew everything there was, basically. And so him saying, oh, the Grateful Dead never played Pride of Cucamonga. It's awesome that we're seeing this. Those memories stick out in my mind, no matter how much vodka I had had consumed pre-show. And the other thing is about this show, Skinny, I don't know if you recall this, but this was the mashed potato burrito show. It's like the worst idea ever. Yeah, I'll just review this story real quick. I think I might have told it in the previous episode. We came out of the show. As we mentioned, Hershey's lot can be kind of difficult. We were starving when we came out of the show. Nobody had set up with a grilled cheese anywhere. I sent J.O. I gave him a $20 bill. I was like, get something to eat 
And he comes back probably 15 minutes later with these two burritos. And I'm like, oh, sweet burrito. And he's like, well, he's like, try it. And so I took a bite and I was like, what is this, mashed potatoes? And it was literally mashed potatoes and like shredded cheese rolled up in a tortilla. And I took one bite and I was like, what is this, mashed potatoes? And he's like, yeah. I was like, well, it's not too bad. So I took another bite and I was like, I mean, it's all right. And I took a third bite and I was like, what the fuck am I doing? This is terrible. Uh, but I was so hungry. I mean, I probably ate half of it. I probably gave the other half to you. And was this also when we got back and then we went into the highs or the Royal Farms and Joe bought the bag of vanilla ice cream sandwiches? Dude, man, you can't get like a a cookie thing like you know the big cookie right. ice creams or whatever or how about yeah. four hot dogs <laughs> <laughs> so dumb uh that's hilarious man Good yeah time. so that was a that was a fun trip up to chocolate world there in hershey and i don't think did we ever see another show at the star pavilion at hershey i don't think we did we might have gone back another year for that i think we went more than once to the star pavilion for phil and friends that is something i'm gonna have to look up because i'm having trouble remembering being out back in the stadium there <laughs> well probably won't happen anytime soon but yeah, anyway man seriously i always want to mention our partners before we wrap up this episode so today i'm going to talk about our friends from the lot by Primal Soup, Margie Merch. So Margie has that original classic lot shirt, the Trey Pistachio. And there's size inclusivity with that. And she has fangirl bell bottoms, Mike side, page side, and Kill Devil Falls postcards that actually benefit the Divided Sky Foundation, which is great. So you should check out Margie Merch, right? I think it's Margie. It's not Margie. I'm an idiot. Margie. <laughs> yeah. It's Margie. That's Meg. Meg from Margie Merch. <laughs> it's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. Meg from Margie Merch. But she's got great stuff. So please go and check them out. It's not just what I mentioned, but there's also other stuff on there that you can mention. I've seen those Trey Pistachio shirts around, I think at Dick's. I saw them uh, last year. I'm pretty sure I did. They're really cool. I love those shirts. I don't get the meaning, but you know, who cares? They're cool. Anyway, so that's all I got today, buddy. Well, I also want to mention Fan Designs, our buddy Scott Mitchell, and that's P-H-A-N-D-E-S-I-G-N-Z, Fan Designs. I've been following him on Insta, and some of those new hats that he's got are pretty dope. He's got yeah. that evergreen hat. He's got that funk hat. So Fan Designs starting to push out some real solid hats especially i'm a hat guy you know that skinny you are a junior hat guy i'll give you i'll give you maybe junior status don't call me junior <laughs> fan designs has some great stuff definitely check them out and obviously check out the lot by primal soup they have everything for your tour needs which is right around the corner actually when this episode comes out will be I think we'll be in the first couple weeks of uh, Fish's summer tour. So excited for that and excited to continue. We only have a couple episodes left, Skinny, of season three, man. 
I know, I can't believe that, considering we haven't been pushing it like we usually do, which we're kind of, we're doing our own thing a little bit just to kind of manage our own time and schedules and family, which is important to us, and I'm sure it's important to all of you, so. We're both professionals. Yeah, yeah, so hopefully we'll, uh, we'll see you all out on tour. Please say hi to us. You know, I know that we'll be at AC and Meriwether, so there's a lot going on this summer, so we hope you all enjoy not only the music but each other your families and your time off well spent and well deserved yeah maximize your experience out there folks if you want to continue the conversation you can check us out on social media we are on twitter at stub underscore me underscore down and we are also on instagram at the same address stub underscore me underscore down a big shout out to our newest friends on the thread on fish twitter you guys are awesome i love being able to chat music and other related topics with y'all you're a great group of folks and thank you for checking us out on stub me down skinny great job man love talking about phil from july 19th 2002 if you guys haven't heard this show go check it out you will definitely find some nuggets there that you will enjoy. Once again, thank you so much for listening to us here on Stummy Down, and we will see you the next time you need to get out of your shitty seats and down to the path. Have a great summer, everybody. We'll see you out there. Later, bro. Later, man. Later, man.